1: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Eric Love about his book, Islamophobia and Racism in America. Welcome to the show, Eric.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sarah.
1: Well, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, Uh, and I study Race, uh, civil rights advocacy organizations, and I, I use qualitative methods. So I, uh, you know, it's not rocket science, it's sociology. I go and uh, I talk to civil rights advocates about uh, their work. I learn about their strategies. Um, and I'm originally from Detroit. Um, and this is my first book, and it's really just a, a great pleasure to be able to, to speak to you about it.
1: Great. Thank you. So, how did this book come about for you?
0: It really, for me, begins uh, when I was um, on a study abroad trip uh, in the year 2000 to date myself a little bit. I look a lot older than I actually am, so many of your listeners, if they've seen a photo of me, will be shocked uh, to hear that I was in uh, in college in the year 2000. Uh, and I went to Jerusalem With this fantastic teacher from Albion College, where I uh, where I was an undergraduate, Len Berkey, and he led this program called the Great Lakes Jerusalem Program, Uh, and it's a very innovative program. We uh, studied with uh, professors from Hebrew University, from Barzit University, uh, both sides of the Green Line there in Jerusalem. And while I was there, what I what I realized is that even though I'd been studying, so I I was a a sociology nerd from from the beginning. declared as a sociology major pretty early. And I realized even though I'd been studying sociology for quite some time, I'd never read anything scholarly about Arab Americans or Muslim Americans or anything like that. And that struck me as odd. So, you know, returning uh, to campus uh, in Michigan um, under the the guidance of Professor Berkey, I started uh, reading some of the great scholarship uh, that's out there, Michael Suleiman, Nadine Naber, uh, and many other uh, folks I could mention started learning more, um, and then later, a couple of years later, when I started graduate school, uh, this is what you know, I've been reading. This kind of on my own, um, and I just it, it, and and then I, you know, was fortunate enough to work with Howard Weinant, uh, and in conversations with him over the first few years of graduate school, came to this focus on advocacy organizations, and so I just sort of connected this this interest that really led me to graduate school with this. Uh, approach that uh, that that uh, Howie suggested, of of looking at uh, advocacy organizations working with Arab Muslim Sikh and South Asian uh, communities, and so that really was that's how it started. Was this um, uh, research uh, on advocacy organizations connected to this long standing interest that I'd had in uh, really Arab American Muslim American civil rights.
1: So to start us off, your book has a lot of really rich concepts in it. So I was hoping you could start us off by defining some terms, for instance, Middle Eastern and how we came to that and sort of the problem with using that term.
0: Yeah. uh, So one of the things I talk about in the book is how difficult it is to talk about Islamophobia uh, because the terms are so inadequate, right? Uh, the, The vocabulary that we have uh, is really doesn't match up with the lived experiences of people that are affected by islamophobia and so what i'm talking about here is how uh islamophobia if you take that term literally you break it up into its parts it means irrational fear of islam right or or fear of muslims basically and that doesn't really capture the structural discrimination hate crimes uh all of the many different things that go into creating this phenomenon that we call Islamophobia. It's not just irrational fear. It's, it's deeper than that. Um, and so with that, you know, one of the first things I talk about in the book is how it's, how difficult it is to talk about how Islamophobia, for example, affects more than just Muslim American communities. Of course, uh, Muslims are affected very deeply by Islamophobia, but so to our sick Americans, um, Arab Americans who are Christian and and Jewish and uh, you know agnostic. Uh, it's not just about religion, although religion is a big part of it. It really, for me, it's very much about race and racism. Uh, it's and and so what we have here is I, I call it a racial paradox in the in the book. And what I mean by that is we we have a situation where the racial category exists. This racial category. Like all of them, socially constructed, uh, it captures all these different communities: Arabs, Sikhs, South Asians, various groups of uh, of Muslim Americans. They're all swept into this racial image of what it, you know, supposedly looks like to be Muslim, right? Of course, it should go without saying. There's no way to actually look Muslim. Uh, Muslims, uh, you know, uh, you can look Muslim no matter who you are. You can be a Muslim. It's a a religion. And of course, uh, you know, we're talking about over a billion people, uh, millions of people uh, in the U.S. And there's no way to say that, you know, they all look a certain way. And yet, you know, this is the 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 terrible magic and the awesome power of race is it ignores all that diversity and says, you know, if you look a certain way, you must fit this this social identity. That's that's race. Right. Um, And. So what I say in the book, this racial paradox, is even though that racial category is there, we can see it with uh, the effect of hate crimes and discrimination. Uh, we don't have a way to talk about it. It's it's trapped in this paradox. It's there and yet it isn't. Um, there's no term for it. Uh, other racial categories that are you know as clear as this one is, socially constructed groups, we have terms that we can use as a shorthand. Uh, Asian American, for example. There's no clear boundary of who is and who isn't Asian, like who fits in that racial category. It doesn't really work, of course, and really none of them do. Uh, who is white? Who isn't? You know, like that, all the racial categories break down like this, and yet we still have terms for various reasons that, you know, that I try to talk about a little bit in the book. But we haven't yet found that one term that works for for this collection of groups that's most affected by Islamophobia because of racism. So I say in the book, you know, it's not a perfect term but I go with Middle Eastern and Middle Eastern American. Um, It really is not a great term at all, uh, but I say to try to have a discussion about what's actually happening, let's just use this term for now. Let's say Middle Eastern and Middle Eastern American. That way, hopefully we can at least have a little bit of a discussion without falling back into this paradox Uh, while we try to just talk about some of the dynamics that that are in play here.
1: So one of the things you talked about in the book is this tendency to, den- to deny race and racism. So the colorblind ideology that we saw when Obama was elected. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk more about that, as well as this insistence that race and religion are not tied together.
0: One of the things that's that's very makes it, again, very difficult to even talk about what's happening, much less what we should do about it, maybe. what's happening with Islamophobia is this tendency in the U.S. where Americans... First of all, Americans really want to believe they live in a society where racism is slowly but surely fading away, where, yeah, sure, there may be a couple of bad apples here and there, but overall, people tend to think America is getting better with regards to to racism. Uh, And so it's uncomfortable to realize that uh, that's not at all true, that uh, racism uh, gets worse uh, and it has been getting worse for, for quite some time in, in ways that we can talk about and point to very specifically. And so one of the things that uh, it, this colorblindness, of course, uh, described in great detail by by a number of, of sociologists, this colorblindness ideology, which is this willful ignorance about race and racism. The idea is it, just talking about race makes it worse. If we could just all pretend it doesn't exist, then things would be a lot better, you know, almost overnight. this you know, the, the false hope that colorblindness presents, uh, one of the ways that it affects the discussion about Islamophobia is in any given moment when Islamophobia manifests, let's say there's a horrible hate crime, uh, let's say that there's a policy like a, a surveillance uh, of a particular Muslim American community or something like this, uh, the racial element that's active in those moments, uh, in the construction of that policy, and the effects of that hate crime, are often uh, ignored. Um, and there's, there's many reasons for that. Very often religion is very much part of the reason why that hate crime happened or the reason why that policy was structured the way that it was. But and so what happens is Americans will very often take any excuse they can to say, Well, this isn't about race, it's about this other thing, right? So, if there's some other factor, whether that's gender or class or religion, any other factor that they can point to and say, Ah, you see, that's not racism, you see, it's really about this thing here, it's actually about you know, gender or class. And rather than, you know, talking about all the complex ways that these are, uh, intersectional, uh, issues, the, the way that these different factors are all involved all simultaneously, Americans will just say, well, race isn't really the problem then, or they won't even mention the racial aspect. It'll just be ignored. And, and instead what's discussed is the religious aspect or or the gender aspect or some others. Uh, and then of course, there are, there are many who will simply say, well, it's not discriminatory at all that, uh, This is just necessary because of the times that we live in, some argument like this. And so then what happens is discussions about race and racism simply aren't happening, and we end up in the place like where we are now, where uh, we have uh, Islamophobia seemingly expanding, uh, spinning out of control in American society with very little pushback against it. Uh, I think this happens in large part uh, because the discussion about race and racism uh, just isn't happening the way that it needs to.
1: So you bring up the idea of racial formation theory, and I was hoping you could tell the listeners more about that, as well as how you sort of see policies and court cases or these structural factors mattering for Islamophobia.
0: What I try to talk about in this part of the book is the way that, uh, again, it gets to the complexity of, of race uh, when it comes to, in particular, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, uh, is there is this this history where um, – you know the the very first uh, naturalization law passed by the U.S. Congress uh, in the 1790s. It set a racial prerequisite: you had to be white uh, to become a naturalized citizen, with with very few exceptions. Uh, and so, what that mean? And that that law, by the way, was in effect until the 1950s. I mean, it just is it's it's just amazing. And so, there's a lot of amazing scholarship uh, on, in particular, Arab American uh, immigrants who. Uh, began coming in large numbers uh, with the Industrial Revolution at the end of the, of the uh, 1800s and into the 1900s. And what they had to do was, as they tried to gain citizenship, uh, was go to courtrooms and say uh, and argue before a court that they were in fact white. Um, so we see, and I, you know, I talk about in the book, how the, the Syrians, as they were called collectively at the time, would go into various courtrooms around the country, and sometimes they, they'd be declared white, other times they'd be declared non-white, and they link in with various other arguments. There's this um, infamous Supreme Court case, uh, United States versus Thind, where uh, the, a nationalized citizen from uh, India, was, his, his citizenship was revoked by the Supreme Court. Uh, all of these various, ra- they're called the racial prerequisite cases of immigrants, and many of them from what we would today call the Middle East, coming into the U.S. and trying to gain uh, citizenship, trying to gain that status and, and and being frustrated by this racial prerequisite um uh, situation and so you know, things changed after the 1950s and 60s as the the explicitly racist parts of immigration policy were removed, uh, but that of course sets in motion a whole other set of uh, of, of immigration policies that are racialized in very powerful ways. Uh, but yeah, I think this history links in with this um, this racial paradox that I talk about where many Arab American uh, communities. Um, They go back many generations. Uh, You can talk to a lot of Arab-American families uh, today and and find that they're in their fourth or fifth generation. Um, Full disclosure, I'm uh, extremely white. I'm one of the whitest people uh, that I know. Uh, My family is in about its fourth generation, right? And so, you know, we consider ourselves white. My family is almost entirely European. Uh, But you can imagine someone from an Arab-American family whose, let's say, great-grandfather immigrated in the early 1900s was a U.S. citizen, was declared white. And you can imagine it's very easy for for families like that to feel, yeah, they're white, you know, they're just as white, they're just as American as anybody else. Uh, And so this idea that there's some racial category that they're supposed to relate to uh, is a a real challenge for for many uh, Arab-American and and Muslim-American families as well. Um, Yeah, so this is, uh, again, it just adds to this complexity of what I call the racial paradox uh, in the book.
1: So... I was wondering if you could talk to us more about how you see Islamophobia developing in America specifically.
0: Yeah. So, of course, this is we're not going to be able to get into everything here. Um, And and in the book, of course, it really just touches, it skims the surface of this history. Uh, But really, you know, what I try to say is that there's this. And what I try to do is link it up with the development of racism in America and in specific, the the ideology of white supremacy. Right. This this um, this ideology that white people are somehow better than other uh, racial groups. And that uh, what I show in the book is how uh, that ideology, white supremacy, uh, is uh, is developing at the same time. And in many ways, you know, it's developing together with Islamophobia uh, of course, it wasn't called Islamophobia until recent years. Uh, you know, uh, it's been called, or versions of it have been called, other things like Islamophobia. Uh, sorry, like Orientalism. Uh, and what we see is, you know, you look at the the history of uh, European conquest and co- uh, colonization of various uh, Muslim majority countries, uh, the and then the decolonization movements uh, in the in the 20th century. To skip over, you know, hundreds of years of history. And what we see is this dehumanization and, you know, all of the hallmarks of racism are there in various stages, in various different forms uh, throughout these many hundreds of years of the relationships between various empires, uh, you know, from uh, Europe, from what we call the Middle East today. And the way that those, the relationships there and the knowledge that's produced as Edward Said described in, in his book Orientalism, the way that knowledge is produced about the Orient or the Middle East uh, and how that knowledge is then transmitted to the United States, uh, how it becomes sort of taken for granted, these this false stereotypes of you know, the, um, the Orient or the Middle East as this backward atavis- atavistic place, hedonistic Uh, All these, you know, these kinds of negative dehumanizing stereotypes about people that live or people who have heritage in that region. And then those stereotypes are reproduced in various uh, forms in the U.S., in popular culture in particular, uh, in uh, the earliest Hollywood films, there's these ridiculous stereotypes Uh, These are reproduced all the way up through to the present uh, in in various uh, television and film productions. And then uh, the development of various uh, discriminatory policies that that in many ways reinforce these stereotypes, Uh, uh, discriminatory uh, policing, surveillance, uh, all these things. they, They all get caught up in this. And so we're really the stage is 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 very full already by the time we reach the 1990s and concern about. Uh, Al Qaeda and uh, other, you know, terrorist groups uh, reaches kind of a boiling point. Uh, and, and and then, of course, the September 11th attacks uh, and uh, and then the hysteria around um, various, uh, you know, the, the lone wolf, quote unquote, lone wolf and sleeper cells and all this kind of uh, hysteria that, that we saw over the last decade or so. And and then Islamophobia used as a campaign strategy uh, in in electoral politics, it's kind of a regular feature of American uh, politics in the last, say, 15 years or so, uh, and and we're that that leads us to the present moment, where again, uh, as I argue in the book, as I said a moment ago, Islamophobia really is is spiraling out of control in the United States in, in really in really uh, disturbing and, and and dangerous ways.
1: Well, I sort of want to get into these interviews you did with the advocates, um, and in your book you talk about. Um, this idea that there's a debate sort of whether to tie Islamophobia to race or not, even within the advocacy community, so I was hoping you could talk more about that.
0: Yeah, so what I really wanted to talk about with this project was the way that um, that that advocates, the way that uh, Arab, Muslim, Sikh, and South Asian American advocates, how they are developing strategies, how they're working to confront Islamophobia, how they're trying to push back against this these trends. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I did is I went in and spoke to um, uh, something around 60 uh, advocates over the period of, of a few years uh, and just learned about how they are approaching this very challenging uh, topic. And really what I expected, you know, I suppose naively, um, is I expected to find what the sociological theory around civil rights advocacy uh, and what we learned from the history of various uh, civil rights movements in the twentieth century, I really expected to see something similar happening with these communities. i what I expected when I set out uh, in you know about ten years ago or so, uh, what I expected to see coalitions forming with umbrella organizations. Uh, helping to bring together or or trying to bring together Arab and Muslim and Sikh and South Asian advocates into coalitions that were durable and were, uh, that were trying to pool resources and respond collectively to what affects all of those communities uh, very directly because of racism. And uh, to me, the closest parallel is probably the Asian American movement of the 1970s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, where um, one moment in the book that that I'd like to highlight is I talk about uh, and it's, as we're recording this we're commemorating the the 35th anniversary of this moment in the early 80s, where uh, in Detroit, my hometown, a, um, a Chinese American man, uh, Vincent Chin, was brutally uh, beaten to death uh, by some disgruntled auto workers uh, who saw in Vincent Chin a Japanese uh, symbol of the decline of the American auto industry. And uh, this became a catalyzing moment for not just Chinese and not just Japanese Americans, but for Asian Americans. And there was this, and, and some of the ma- amazing scholarship by people like Yenli Espiritu and Dina Okamoto. They they chart how uh, through the work done before and after the, the Vincent Chin uh, murder, how they worked to bring together uh, disparate groups of asian americans and to really launch this uh asian american idea the the idea of asian american as a as an identity as a politically powerful identity as a as a way to bring together resources and to to drive these coalitions Uh, and so what i expected to see uh when i was setting out uh to study these advocacy groups working on islamophobia was something similar to that where there would be advocates saying hey you know you might be sick. I might be Muslim. This guy over here might be an Arab Christian, but we're all affected similarly by Islamophobia. So why don't we work together on this? And, you know, I did see some coalition work, uh, but not anything like uh, what was happening with Asian-Americans in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the groups largely, you know, stick to them to themselves. They, you know, they engage in what I call this kind of like uh, ad hoc coalition building, uh, transactional rather than uh Ah, uh, transformational, as I describe in the book, uh, and that came as a real surprise. So then, really, what I set out to to talk about is you know what that means that there is so little coalition work happening here, how it is that it that it came to be like this, and that really kind of animates the uh, the analysis that I try to present.
1: Um, so then, in the book, you talk more about the advocacy agencies and sort of coalition building. So I was hoping you could talk more, sort of, about the strategies that they're using, as well as the conversations they were having with you.
0: Yeah. So okay. So the main thing that I that I saw in in the interviews that I did was uh, a sort of advocacy that conforms largely. And again, I want to say there are there are important exceptions, and and I detail this in the book. But by and large, what I saw was. Middle Eastern American advocates uh, conforming largely to the colorblindness ideology where they didn't talk about race and racism very much in their in their advocacy work. So what I mean here is when they would um, uh, write a press release to to um, to denounce a particular policy, when they would hold uh, an event to talk about a particular problem uh, in most of the public facing work that they did. They didn't use the terms race and racism. They used other frameworks, religion, uh, religious freedom. Uh, They kind of talked about uh, the problem of Islamophobia as one of, look, you know, these these uh, communities are just like every other American. Uh, So a a really good example is is several of the of the organizations that I study. They put the word American first. Right. They say American Muslim uh, or American Arab. And the idea there is, OK, if, if we if we do that, what we're emphasizing is we're just as American as everyone. We're not claiming any kind of and in doing this with this strategy, they don't claim any kind of uh, connection to uh, the aggrieved minority groups uh, like African-Americans, like uh, Latinx communities or or any others. What they're saying is we are basically. Uh, just the same as as white people, right? To to oversimplify a bit, is they're trying to say, look, we should be treated the same as Christians. We should be treated the same as uh, the Italians, right? Or you know, it's just another group of of mainstream Americans uh, who happen to be Muslim or happen to be Sikh or some or happen to be Arab. Uh, and, and we, therefore discrimination shouldn't happen. And that's a different strategy than, you know, what I talk about, uh, as this kind of like the, the way the civil rights movements were happening in the, in the 1900s, where it's about pointing to, uh, racism specifically and using that very moral claim that racism is wrong to say that, you know, our communities are being, uh, attacked because of how we look. It's, it's, it's racism, Uh, If you think that racism against, for example, African-Americans is wrong, then you have to think that racism against our communities is wrong as well. And what I saw was much less of that kind of a strategy and and those kinds of arguments. Uh, And um, so that to me was, I I think, indicative of a number of different trends that I point to in the book. One of the biggest ones, of course, being uh, colorblindness, the way that uh, it's become just sort of taken for granted that the way to argue for uh, for civil rights more generally in the U S is to use a colorblind approach to not really talk about race and racism directly, but instead to kind of dance around it, to, to use other frameworks to talk about discrimination without bringing up the controversial thorny issue of race. And this is something that, you know, 30 or 40 years ago using racism uh, was, was the, that was the approach taken for granted using the the language of, uh, you know, this is racist because it had such a powerful, moral and a very politically powerful, um, uh, message behind it. When, when a group claimed that racism was happening, you know, there was, uh, Democrats and Republicans, people across the political spectrum would say, okay, we don't want this society should not tolerate racism. Let's do something about this. And what I say is, you know, let's say since the 1990s or so that kind of claim is no longer automatically powerful. Instead, it becomes, it's controversial. It violates the kind of colorblindness, um, I guess uh, the the normal way that you talk about things is through this colorblindness framework. And so it's it's much more difficult to make those sorts of claims.
1: So here to sort of finish off the book, I was hoping you could talk to us about the big picture as well as sort of the takeaways that you had from the book. For instance, in the conclusion chapter, I really liked this quote from an advocate you spoke to who said, it's imperative that we row in sync. So I was hoping you could talk more about what you sort of see the big picture as being.
0: Oh, well, what I what I try to do in the conclusion uh, is is point out and and try to pull back and say, okay, what are what are the experiences of Middle Eastern American, of Arab Muslim Sikh, South Asian American uh, advocates? You know, if it were really true that America wanted that Americans wanted to live in a society where racism wasn't a, a, a big deal anymore, then the work that they've done should be pretty easy. Right. Like. Uh, they should be able to simply say, hey, you know, this isn't cool and things should change pretty quickly. And of course, what we've seen is that their work is anything but easy. It's, it's been extremely difficult uh, and it's getting more difficult all the time, it seems. Uh, and so what I say is that that carries very profound implications for how civil rights advocacy works or perhaps more accurately how it doesn't work in general in the U.S. today. Uh, And what that means for, you know, if we really do want to be a society where racism is 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 not a big deal anymore, then that needs to change. Uh, These advocates are you know, they're on the front lines. They're working hard every day to try to push back against these problems. And we should be trying to make the work easier for them, not more difficult. And the other thing I do is um, is I basically try to say, look, you know, you got to go read some of the work of these other amazing scholars, these these incredible scholars that have done. So much work on this question exactly is what does a 21st century civil rights movement look like? So I point to Michelle Alexander, uh, Deepa Iyer, uh, and a few other folks and say, look, what they talk about here is like what that advocate that you quoted there says is we need to row and sync. that the the way that civil rights movements happened in the 1960s and in the 1900s. It's not going to be the same as we push back against problems like mass incarceration and, and police violence And Islamophobia, which are very much uh, inextricably linked, they these all stem from the same root. The root is white supremacy. Uh, As we try to find ways to build coalitions that can push back against those things, uh, it's going to require that we row in sync, that we find creative ways to uh, to transcend the politics of the moment. And to bring together groups that don't often come together uh, to build those coalitions, even though that's very difficult and painstaking work, uh, that's the kind of work that a, that a 21st century civil rights movement is, is going to, uh, that's, that's what it'll look like when it's, it starts to, uh, to be more successful than it has been in the last uh, you know, 15 years or so.
1: Great. Thanks again so much for being with us today. I was hoping you could talk to us about what you're currently working on.
0: Yeah, sure. So I, what I, I really want to continue doing what I did for this book, which is talking to civil rights advocates, learning about the strategies that, they, that they're that they developing. And so I'm, I'm doing that. I, I've uh, been fortunate enough over the past couple of years to, to launch a new project where I'm talking to advocates that are working on an issue that's very much defined by race and racism. Uh, and the issue is public transportation. And so I've, I've been speaking to advocates in, a, in, in cities around the country and just talking to them about, you know, that's another issue like Islamophobia, where the racism is often ignored or kind of talked about as a side effect rather than as, as the foundational element of how transportation systems in America, how they were developed. It's very much about racism, right? Uh, and so I want to learn how those advocates that are trying to improve public transportation in American cities, how they navigate those racial politics, how they find, uh, strategies to, um, to try to, you know, to push back against that racism and, and find ways to move, uh, improvements for public transportation forward. So I've, I've been working on that for a couple of years now, and, and hopefully, um, somebody is listening to this podcast in the, uh, in the not too distant future, and they could, uh, they could maybe see, uh, some of the work that I'm hoping to, uh, to develop on that right now. Uh, so I'm working on that, and of course, uh, continuing to follow the, um, uh, the very disturbing developments around Islamophobia and, uh, but yeah, basically I'm, you know, I hope to continue doing work around, uh, civil rights advocacy in the United States.
1: That sounds really interesting. So thanks again for being with us today, Eric.
0: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the the chance to talk to you.
1: Thanks again. And catch us next time on new books in sociology.